Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. To the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 8th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. And we are beginning a new series. We're calling it Depth Chart Diving. We're going to begin in the AL West. The way it's going to work is we're going to have one division per show just to chop the teams up into small groups. We're going to take a spin through each team's depth chart, looking for playing time battles of interest specifically, uh, but anything else that catches our eye, either undervalued players, overvalued players, anything's fair game. But I think one one exercise that I like to do every draft season, Al, is I like to go through each team's depth chart and just try and find things that surprise me, things that either open up more playing time or maybe crowds that are worse than I expected. Because I think as we've learned in recent years, as Jeff Zimmerman has preached for a long time, among other people who do really well in their leagues, Playing time is a huge, huge component to our success in a fantasy baseball league. And I think we, this is my opinion now, we tend to gravitate towards what we see in front of us on on public-facing numbers like fan graphs and, and kind of just assume that that playing time is right. So it's really important for us to question that. Uh, as great of a job as, as that team at Roster Resource does, you got to turn over every stone and just try and find playing time situations that might not be what they seem on the surface. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, really important that we all do our best at that because, uh, like you said, they do a fantastic job at Roster Resource, but like you know anybody else, uh, they're they're putting out their best guess at a lineup. Uh, it's an extremely informed guess, but there's variation. You know, obviously, uh, you know, we're I know we're going to talk about, for example, the Astros today, and uh, you know, the certainty of who's plugging in at shortstop is a lot different than the certainty of, uh, you know, who's plugging in uh, at at first base. So, uh, yeah, we you know we need to to look at what a uh, you know, a more fleshed out depth chart, if we could do that with more nuance, you know, see what that would look like. Yeah, let's start with the Astros. I keep wondering if they're really okay with their internal options as replacements for Carlos Correa if he signs elsewhere. And of course, if Correa goes and signs with the Yankees or the Cubs or somewhere else, some other team looking for uh, a big upgrade shortstop, Trevor Story is still out there. So maybe he's a fallback option for Houston. We should probably just fold him into this conversation at some point today, too. But they did it with George Springer, and they had a lot of success last year in center field. They didn't need the replacements for George Springer to be as good as Springer because their offense was just so deep a year ago. And I just wonder if they can get away with that trick again, given what they've got in their system. Jeremy Pena and I think Pedro Leon are probably two names that people are wondering about as possible solutions as internal replacements. Yeah, and uh, again, just to refer back to roster resource, they are showing Pena in there. I mean, you know, to me, that's that's an exciting possibility because Pena had such a really nice season in, in 2021 at AAA. 
but you know, it was in very limited time. Only played 30 games there and um, skipped right over Double A. So that that you know, I I actually I did a, a mock last week with the uh, CBS folks, 15 team roto, and I did take Pena late. But uh, you know, again, that's a 15 teamer. Uh, it was one of the last rounds. And I think that's where it makes sense to, to take that depth chart seriously. But like you said, you could see Trevor's story there. I saw another free agent, by the way, who I think would be sort of an interesting uh, possibility there. And that's Nico Gudrum, because uh, I think he would sort of, you know, fit the model of, like you said, what they did last year uh, at a couple of positions by... Um, you know, they use Miles Straw and, you know, you saw this. We're going to talk about some other players like Chaz McCormick and Jake Myers, who uh, got some some piecemeal place, uh, playing time. And I think Gudrum is, you know, somebody who might provide the, you know, the versatility that would help them avoid making a big splash with somebody like uh, Story or re-signing uh, Carlos Correa. And, uh, you know, just a few, few years removed from, I think, having uh, roughly a, like a three-war season. So, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of different ways this could go. Yeah, I think Nico Goodrum is a good tooled-up bench player to have. I'm trying to figure out if a team contending for the playoffs is willing to take his flaws. I mean, he's a good defender. He obviously runs well, can play multiple spots. He's a switch hitter. Maybe there's something a team could also maybe fix in his swing that would bring the K rate down. He draws lots of walks, so... There's definitely some stuff there to work with coming off a career-high barrel rate in 2021 as well. I think his savant page has been fixed. If you looked at it maybe four or five days ago, it was actually broken to the point where all the X stats were off the charts good, like amazingly good. Someone sent me a tweet. It's like, what's going on with Nico Goodrum's page? I like, <laughs> looked at it and looked at fan graphs. Like, yeah, it's it's broken. I don't know whose numbers those are, but those aren't his. But there, there are some interesting underlying numbers in this profile. So it would tell me a lot if a team like the Astros or the Dodgers or the Rays or the Brewers or a team that tends to dig into the scrap heap and find value if they are the team that goes out and gets Goodrum, to me it means they see something that can be unlocked. Whereas if it ends up being, I don't know, Baltimore or a team like that, where, yes, they can make players better too, but they might be looking to like stretch him over a larger share of playing time, whereas in a lot of those contending situations, he'd be more of a you know a three- to four-day-per-week sort of player with the opportunity for more, of course, if injuries occurred or if, if someone got hurt. But, you know, Thinking about this from the the middle ground solution, if it's Trevor Story, is that an upgrade for Story? His ADP, going back to January 15th, I was looking only at the Draft Champions Leagues over at the NFBC, is 34th overall. So we have no idea where Trevor Story is actually going to play. It seems like he's leaving Colorado. And that can be a better transition than... I think we once thought. I think we used to believe that if a hitter left Colorado, there was nowhere to go but down. But we've learned so much more about the difficulties of hitting there, going on the road and hitting when you play your home games in Coors Field that I think if you land in a great lineup, that can help just pad the counting stats. If you land in a park where you maybe are going to strike out less, that could definitely help as well. And I think Houston sort of ticks those boxes for me where I, I could just see that being a place where, yeah, maybe the... The raw power potential comes down just a little bit. Maybe there's a little more batting average liability not being in Coors with the massive gaps. And, and Story has a little bit of batting average downside as it is. But he's a really good player that could end up in a, 
better situation. So what do you make of Trevor Story, where he's going right now with an ADP pretty firmly inside that top 40 overall over the last three weeks or so? I think it's just about right. And if he does land with Houston, then yeah, I think he deserves a, a significant bump up, not to the point, I think, where if the Rockies re-signed him, which I agree with you, I don't see that happening. But uh, I, I think that those trade-offs that you mentioned, that he, he would get a, a really nice boost in the counting stats and would definitely, we would definitely need to expect a downturn in the um, in the batting average, but you know he could uh, turn in another uh, twenty steal season. I think it'd be realistic to expect um, you know probably at least twenty five home runs, really wherever he lands. And uh, yeah, so you get him in a, an environment where he can produce a lot of runs. That's that's going to help him a lot. Just looking back at the Astros depth chart here for a minute, it really does seem possible that they're going to mix and match at a couple positions that most teams have an everyday player for. It's kind of an inside-out actual roster construction, which I think is fun, but you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because a big league bench is basically four players, and one of those players has to be a backup catcher. Usually one of those is a dedicated outfielder. One of those guys has to be able to play shortstop competently, and then usually you get like one sort of corner guy. And that's typically how it's constructed within a little bit of a, a variation. So is there anyone thinking about how they are structured that's sitting there right now that maybe in a mono league or a draft and hold, you know, 50 rounder where you're just looking for playing time where you could say, you know what, this guy's on that bench. He can play enough spots based on where they're weak or where they have injury risk. He could play a lot because Aledmiz Diaz, like, I know we've kind of given up hope that there was more there with him compared to where he was when he first broke through at St. Louis. Right now, to me, he looks like that guy who's going to fall into a lot of playing time. I agree with you. Uh, and obviously, you know, everything that we say here is uh, subject to change uh, when the lockout ends. But yeah, as it stands right now, as this uh, roster is currently constituted, I he stands out as the one player on the bench who would have some fantasy relevance. Definitely in monos, maybe even some some pretty deep mixed leagues uh, because of the playing time concern kind of taking us back DVR to the, the very first thing that you said in this episode that uh, it's it's hard to overrate the importance of playing time and there's a possibility for him there and I mean you know I talked about Nico Gudra may maybe being a fit but Diaz is already there filling that role and I you know if they did get Gudrum and this is just you know absolute speculation on my part seeing who's out there in the free agency pool and thinking okay where's where's there a place and a role I mean I think they would have complementary roles with each other uh, if that were to happen. But, uh, you know, as it stands, yeah, Diaz could, could be a super utility player who still has, has a bit of pop and that, uh, you know, for, um, you know, being able to fill a a number of positions in fantasy that, that counts. Take a quick look at the outfield where it was a combination of Miles Straw, who's been since traded to Cleveland, Jake Myers, Chaz McCormick, even Jose Siri late in the year, all getting some time in that outfield. If you think about Michael Brantley's injury history, you think about maybe some of the concerns we had a year ago about the knees of Jordan Alvarez, there could be swells of playing time that become available. And there's at least that one spot in center field that appears to be up for grabs right now. Out of this cast of outfielders, who interests you the most? Oh, uh, I mean, it, obviously, you didn't include Kyle Tucker there. So out of the rest, I mean, you, I don't know if you were including Brantley in that group because I, I'm actually surprised uh, that he's fallen as much as he has. And I, I think that's maybe a little bit too much recency bias there 
with uh, just a, a slightly down season last year. But out of those, you know, more marginal options that you mentioned, I'd say probably Chaz McCormick. Uh, but it, it was kind of funny to me last year, DVR, because it, during the 2020 season, when we all participated in the athletics uh, out of the park simulation and I managed the Astros. And one of the things that I did was call Chaz McCormick up kind of early. And what he did in the actual 2021 season was like a carbon copy of what he did in out of the park. So, uh, you know, I think he does have the potential in spurts to be really productive, but if he gets exposed to a lot of playing time, I don't think that that's a, that's a good thing. But I mean, if I'm forced to choose between him and, and Jake Myers, I, I do like McCormick's skill set just a tad better. But um, I, I don't think any of them will really fare well with true everyday playing time. Yeah, I, I think I was. Yeah, I was kind of thinking more about the McCormick Myers Siri group because I think one of those three guys will end up playing a decent bit more than the others, or at least could end up in that spot. If healthy, Michael Brantley, I think, is a good bounce-back candidate, a rare source of batting average late. So you get average, you probably get good run production as well. I think what we saw back in 18 and 19, his final year in Cleveland and his first year in Houston, over 80 runs scored. I think he averaged like 84 RBIs those two seasons. He's hit 300 every year since 2018. If you've built a power-heavy team, it's light on batting average, and you get into that that pick 250 range. I think Brantley makes sense, even with some of the health risks. Of course, he's had uh, some decent injuries over the course of his career, but he's been more healthy the last four years than I think people would have expected coming out of that 16 and 17 stretch. Yeah, and I don't know if that's something that still lingers for people in their memories, but like you said, for where he goes, uh, the, you know, the batting average is. Pretty, pretty tempting, and I could see myself, if his ADP doesn't adjust, I could see myself drafting him quite a few times this year. Let's move on to Oakland, where we are awaiting a teardown, and if it doesn't happen until midseason, there are still a lot of spots up for grabs right now. I would include both middle infield spots, no disrespect to Tony Kemp or Elvis Andrews, but I think the A's are looking for some answers there left field where I think Chad Pinder could be maybe a small side platoon guy, but not an everyday guy necessarily right field where Steven Piscotty might just be done. They've got the DH spot right now with Seth Brown, probably leading the way for playing time. Although he could also be part of the left field mix. Their closer situation looks like that's up for grabs right now as well. I don't think Lou Trevino has the skills that we're looking for for to be a consistent ninth inning option or even a a good high leverage guy I think he's more of a middle reliever miscast in the late innings at at times so pick your spot I mean uh, is there anyone currently on this depth chart battling for one of those spots that I mentioned that you think could actually be an everyday guy in disguise yeah I mean this is a team with just a lot of holes and and frankly not a lot of solutions (laughs) Uh, when you look either on the bench or in the minor leagues um, but the, there's one name that really does stand out to me in, in terms of the, the minor leaguers, uh, just, uh, because of, you know, the fact that, as you mentioned that, uh, they're, they're going to have a need for somebody to plug in some playing time in the middle infield. So I think Nick Allen is a possibility there. I'm not sure, you know, that he's ready after, um, you know, just playing 39 games at triple a last year after, uh, playing 50 at double a. But, um, you know, good defender. And I mean, if he does accumulate the playing time and, and wouldn't totally hit his waist uh, out of out of regular play, there's 
you know, some possibility there for a little bit of stolen base help. So it's it's not real exciting DVR. Uh, I, I guess if I want to go maybe even a, a little bit deeper, um, one of the additions this offseason was Drew Jackson, who's uh, who's been a journeyman. But, uh, you know, maybe Oakland's the kind of place where, uh, because Jackson is somebody who does get on base, uh, you know, maybe uh, there, there would be a role for him there and, uh, you know, kind of a similar appeal in terms of providing some, uh, some stolen bases and, and maybe just a little bit of pop. But nobody I'm really very excited about. Nobody I'm really seriously looking at uh, outside of mono leagues or really deep, uh, deep mixed leagues. Yeah, I thought Seth Brown could have been interesting when he was called up last year just as a guy that had some pretty big power numbers in the upper levels of the minor leagues and, and hadn't really ever had a long chance to play in the big leagues but it it played out kind of the way you'd expect it to for a player with that profile a k rate near 30 percent a low average low obp good slugging percentage line it was a cheap 20 home runs but it, it came with kind of some downside wrinkled in there too and it wasn't wasn't a case where you were uh, leaving him in your lineup week over week either. He was just more of a, a spot play in, in weekly leagues. Uh, once he did get that opportunity, the projections don't see much there for him. And I think this is an Oakland team that will actually do the teardown once the lockout yeah. is over. I don't think they're going to wait. I think they're going to move at least one of the Matts, Matt Olson or Matt Chapman probably goes. I, I think it makes more sense to trade Matt Olson. I, I, as great as he was in 2021, it's reasonably easy to rotate a scrap heap first baseman. You think about journeymen like Frank Schwindel who are just waiting and waiting and waiting to get an opportunity. You can find a guy like that and plug him in and see what happens at that spot, and you might be just fine. And I think if you make a trade involving Matt Olson, you might be able to bring back two or three guys that are currently bench players somewhere else who can help cover some of these major league holes. I don't think you're getting great prospects back because teams are increasingly less likely to deal those kinds of players. But the trade that we came up with, I think it was on rates and barrels, maybe a month or so ago now, we thought that the the Mets lined up really well with uh, the A's for a, a pitcher. You could trade you know, Frankie Montas or Sean Manaya or Chris Bass. You could trade any of the pitchers there. And of course, if you trade Montas, you're going to get more back than the others. And the others are, I think, pending free agents. But I think the point was you could look at a team like that and say, well, Dominic Smith doesn't have a place to play every day, but he'd be really interesting to a team like Oakland because they could just make him a first baseman again. Or Jeff McNeil, who has to play multiple spots there, they could acquire Jeff McNeil and let him play. Um, if they hooked up with Toronto for a Matt Chapman trade, I think our, our fit there was well, Kevin Biggio plus Kevin Smith plus you know maybe a mid-level guy like that. That's an interesting trade for Oakland because they're patching up these holes with guys that do bring more to the table than some of their their current options. Um, I think that's the weird thing about this team. It seems like it's been a little while since they've, they've brought up the the mats and that core of prospects and Daniel Robertson was part of that group too. They just haven't had that, that next wave of talent come through the minor leagues in, in quite a while. No, they haven't. And uh, so it's, it's really going to show, I think by the time we get to the middle of this season and it wouldn't make sense for them not to do a teardown, frankly, because uh, they just don't have, I don't think they have the pieces to contend and the pitching is uh, obviously a little bit better. They've had a little bit more, more depth there, but uh, you know, there's question marks there uh, as well. And if they were to trade Montas, uh, I think they'd, they'd really be in full rebuild, full rebuild mode. 
Yeah. The actionable advice here, if they make that trade or when they make those trades as described, just be ready to pounce on the players coming back because there might be a lull where the playing time projections for the guys they acquired are lighter than they should be because of the problems that they have. I could also see Oakland being the team that goes out and signs Tommy Pham, right? I mean, he's a, mm-hmm. a good OBP, does everything sort of player. If they're trying to play the middle, if they don't tear it completely down, you add a guy like that, maybe he has a three or four war season, has that sort of bounce back year, and you're hanging around in the AL West or hanging around in the wild card race longer than expected, and it's a good thing. And if you're not and he's playing well, you flip him and you get something back for the future. I think there's a few ways that could go right. His profile just seems to fit this team really well. Um, and regardless of where he plays, I will use this opportunity to say that I am all in on a Matt Chapman bounce back. He's not even going inside the top 150 right now. The reason why I believe it is because you look at the hard hit rates, the barrel rates, they've been consistently good throughout his career. I know the K rate was up last year. He was coming off a major injury. He's got issues with the high fastball. We've documented that before, but a guy that plays every single day the way that Matt Chapman does and the guy that's shown us in the big leagues before that he can hold that K rate in the low to mid 20% range, I want that player because the counting stats will be good even if the batting average remains a liability and he's going to keep getting that power enough to be at least an average contributor in that category with room to be a well above average contributor. Yeah, I, no, the only reason I really would be at all intrigued by Chapman is just because of the, the mess that third base is going into this year. But I don't know. I mean, I see Joey Gallo uh, without without the, the walks. Um, you know, we talked on the last episode, DVR, about how do we deal with 2020? And one of the things that I said is, for me, it's it's kind of a way to, to just, you know, confirm things that otherwise I might be more uncertain about uh, that happened in 2021. And that jump in the strikeout rate does date back to 2020. So, yeah, I think you can count on the power, but I think that the batting average ceiling is is really low. I don't think we'll ever see him anywhere near the 278 that he hit back in 2018 again. And, yeah, and I mean, especially if he does stay in Oakland, that's not going to be a very good lineup. I don't see a lot here to like, but the fact that at least, yeah, you've got that power upside uh, in, in, at a position that's really very weak after the, the first few players come off the board. That's that's the only thing I really see here that that intrigues me. Like the fool that I am, I'll take the over on the projections for the batting average. The best is 230 from Zips. I think he's more of a 240, maybe a 250 guy. I'm with you. 278. Don't don't expect that to happen again. Even if he ends up in a more hitter friendly environment, that's not really the way he hits the ball. It's just not not the kind of player that he is going to be. I mentioned Lou Trevino in passing. Just one of a handful of of relievers that. It could be the guy that I have no interest in right now. If I'm taking a shot in the Oakland bullpen, it's somewhere else. It's one of those pens where I think I've done four drafts now. I have zero Oakland relievers. Those have all been deep draft and hold leagues where just about everybody's second or third reliever is a consideration at some point in the end game. Yeah, this is a, a little bit of an adjustment for me because I always think about the A's having a really good deep bullpen and suddenly it's it's really uh really depleted and to me Trevino is the best option that they've got there maybe you get a bounce back season from AJ Puck and, and maybe he he establishes establishes himself as a reliable back end option but until we see that I'm not really too excited about everybody here and you know Trudy Trevino has had uh, some success in the closers role it's not been you know really 
you know, for a very long stretch, but um, he's decent. He's decent. And uh, I would certainly take him uh, over, uh, you know, a, a lot of other situations that are sort of uncertain. I mean, we're, you know, we're going to look at uh, a lot of uh, save sharing situations in the major leagues this year, you know, the last few years, that's just increased more and more. That's, it's clearly a trend now. And I don't see any challengers right now to Trevino. Now that obviously can change those kinds of things change every single season and relievers emerge that we never thought of back in, in March or February. But to me right now, he is the clear option. I think if I had to throw a dart as it stands right now, and they could bring in some more, some more candidates, Domingo Acevedo is the guy that I'm curious about as a sleeper. Great numbers at AAA last year, a little on the older side for a guy that just debuted in 2021, but maybe without the, the 2020 season being the way it was, he would have debuted then. Nice K rate, 42% K rate at AAA. Nice low walk rate. The numbers in the big leagues in 11 innings weren't quite as good, but even compared to a Trevino and uh, one of the other guys that I was just looking at, uh, oh, Dealus Guerra. Mm-hmm. Acevedo throws a little harder than both of those guys, so I, I think that's the other nudge in in the direction of Acevedo. Probably not the guy to begin the season, but I could see him emerging to be someone that actually has a prominent role in that bullpen sooner rather than later, just based on the way that it's built. Let's go to the Angels. Simple question to start this one, because I think the outfield could be a little crowded if Justin Upton and Mike Trout are healthy. We don't have a spot for Brandon Marsh and Joe Adele to play. They'd have to do some kind of rotation with Upton. Who's the better redraft option? in 2022 is it marsh as the guy that they like defensively in center field is it adele as i think the biggest improver in strikeout rate from the shortened season to 2021 if you look at the fan graphs year-over-year leaderboard changes massive improvement for adele which one of those players are you leaning toward in redraft if if you're taking one of them at all it's definitely adele um for a, for a whole bunch of reasons, and one that you mentioned in terms of the improvement in the strikeout rate. Uh, but just overall, I mean, if you go back a year or two, uh, Adele was, you know, the, the more highly touted prospect, the one with the, the better skill set overall. And while he's been a little, you know, slow to adjust to the majors, even coming up again last year, he just hasn't played all that much at this level. So I think he deserves our benefit of the doubt. We actually saw a little bit more of Brandon Marsh. I mean, I think you'll see better versions of both of them this year. But uh, Adele has not really done anything for me to to leap uh, Marsh uh, leapfrog Marsh over him. I think um, you know both have potential to give you low double digit steals, but I don't think Marsh has the potential to give you twenty twenty five homers this year. And I could easily see Adele doing that. And I don't think you know either one is necessarily somebody you're going to look to for batting average either. So I think Adele gives you the edge in, in power and. Um, you know, just the better overall package. Yeah, I think with Brandon Marsh, it's always been expected or projected that the the raw power would turn into game power. And coming off a shoulder surgery last year, especially, that was probably not the year it was going to happen. Like seeing big league pitching for the first time and coming off that injury and not having minor league games in 2020, that, that all kind of combined to be a situation where you really couldn't expect that. So I'm really curious to see where that eventually settles in for him is he like a 15 homer guy that that gets to the 20 plus steals i could see that being the case that's a good fantasy player if that's what brandon marsh becomes eventually and then adele it's definitely more of a a power first skill set but 
even if he gives back some of those gains in K-rate, because the O-swing percentage was fairly high at 40%, if he strikes out 28 to 30% of the time, if he's hitting the ball hard enough, that can work. I think a lot of this rides on, on Justin Upton and whether or not he's done. This is the last year of his contract, so if it goes poorly, I think we could see the Angels go down the same path they went down with Albert Pujols a year ago. Mm-hmm. If it's uh, a reasonable sort of bounce-back year for Justin Upton, then they can justify keeping him and playing him because he's 34. I think he's one of those players that because he was supposed to be a superstar and expectations were always so high, I think we're sometimes more disappointed in him than we should be. I think he's had a really nice career. And this is a guy that just a few years ago, it's a little, little more than a few years ago now, in 2018, popped 30 home runs, hit 257 with 344 OBP. It's been a lot of injuries in the time since then. 63 games played in 2019, 42 out of 60 games played in 2020, and only 89 games played in 2021. So I wonder how much of his overall struggle and just the overall decline in his numbers it's just the result of not being healthy because he looked like a a very steady player even as he entered his 30s. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. But uh, I, I like the analogy with Albert Pujols because I, I just think that at this stage, uh, the Angels, I don't know, unless Adele just really struggles to kind of hit the next gear, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the angels would really have invested in giving Upton regular playing time in the outfield. I could see a little bit of a rotation, like what you were mentioning, you know, spell uh, Adele and, and Marsh here and there. But, um, you know, I mean, it's a cliche, but I think it's time for them to, you know, take a look at their future. And I'm not sure what incentive they would have internally to, to not go that route at this point. Add this angels team to the list of teams that should be interested in a shortstop you know, I don't know if, if they're going all the way up to Correa, but if the Trevor Story contract duration is on the shorter end and it's you know $25 million a year for three or four years, that would make a lot of sense for them. They have a clear need at shortstop, and it'd be a great fit for them to have a player like that. But they really have more questions in the rotation. Is it good enough as constructed? It's Otani. It's Noah Syndergaard. Griffin Canning, if healthy, I think is a big part of this plan. Uh, Patrick Sandoval, Reed Detmers, whose debut last year was disappointing, but he's supposed to be the most big league ready pitcher from that 2020 draft class. I could see a nice bounce back from him. They brought in Michael Lorenzen, who gets a a shot at starting. And if that doesn't work, he goes probably to the seventh inning role in front of Aaron Loop and Rysel Iglesias. Uh, And they've got uh, Jose Suarez there as well. And this is a little deeper than rotations past in Anaheim, but definitely one that's full of, of health concerns, given what we've seen from a lot of these guys in recent years. Yeah, health concerns, performance concerns. Uh, so, you know, to get back to your initial questions, I, I don't think that they do have enough to have um, a solid rotation. Um, you know, they've, they've got the quantity. Uh, you'd certainly, you know, if um, no Syndergaard can, can bounce back, if, like you said, uh, Canning is healthy. Uh, Patrick Sandoval, I, I don't worry too much about him. I mean, I think he actually, you know, could slot in as a, a solid number two guy behind Otani, but a lot of question marks there. Uh, Lorenzen is, at least for the time being, he'll be slotted in in the rotation, but we've seen situations like this before with a, a swingman type that, that gets a shot at starting and then, um, you know, it just doesn't work out. Um, 
for whatever reason, I'm thinking of Ranger Suarez right now, but that obviously <laughs> worked out for him in the longer run. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's intriguing. Like they, they could wind up having a really good rotation if everything breaks right, but uh, you, you just can't count on that. But I mean, I'd love to see a, a rotation with Otani and Syndergaard, uh, Canning, uh, Sandoval, Lorenzen or Detmer, some combination there. And, and, you know, Suarez is the seventh guy we mentioned. I like him a lot too, uh, but everything just has, has to break right here. So, you know, there's a number of guys here that I would be drafting late, probably in 15 teamers and uh, just hope that, hope that things work out and hope that I have room to, to stash them for a while. They're definitely built like a team that is leaning into that six man rotation during the regular season though, with those health risks, you know, I, I think, Cindergard to me is almost safer in Anaheim where they're trying to get 150 innings out of him than he would have been going somewhere else where they might have pushed him and tried to get 180 or 190. Like I I, I think I'm a, a little more optimistic about Cindergard holding up. I and mean, when he pitches, he's really good. I think the the question is how much injury risk do you have on your roster when you start thinking about drafting him? Little surprised he's not going earlier outside the top 200 overall in ADP going back to late January. Uh, Sandoval's going ahead of Cindergard. Do you agree with the market on that one? That Patrick Sandoval's actually the more intriguing of those two, given concerns about Thor's health? No, I, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, I would certainly like to see Syndergaard's, um velocity back up whenever uh, they do get to camp this year. But yeah, obviously the the ceiling for him is so much higher. There's questions about questions for both of them. So that is a bit perplexing as to why Sandoval's going going earlier. What do you think about Jared Walsh, by the way? Like, I've been kind of wrong about him multiple times now. I was in, intrigued when the K-rate basically bottomed out in the shortened season in a good way at 13.9%. I think even if you liked Jared Walsh, it was hard to say, well, these 32 games mean this is what he is as a player now. Uh, he ended up with a 26% K-rate over a full season in 2021, got to the power consistently, popped 29 homers, drove in 98 runs, I don't think we have any real playing time concerns here. First base should be his. He's outside the top 100 overall in ADP, and it's a position that does tail off a bit quicker than usual, in part because a lot of teams do mix and match that position, or they've got you know, old injury-prone players uh, locked into that spot. So where do you fall on Walsh at his current price? Uh, well, I like the current price. So, um, you know, I... This is a little bit roundabout DVR, but I did, or I mentioned I did a mock last week and I had the 10th pick and it came down to Bryce Harper falling to pick 10, but also Freddie Freeman was still out there. And I actually took Freeman because just the drop after um, Vlad and him is sort of terrifying to me. But, you know, in retrospect, it really was the wrong move. And that's why it's good that we do mocks, you know, so we can get these mistakes out of the way because I wound up with a really poor outfield. I, you know, could have had Bryce Harper and didn't. And, you know, yeah, it, it, the the ADP that you got Jared Walsh going at, you, you're not obviously getting anything close to Freddie Freeman, but you are getting tremendous value. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the the playing time concerns were there a year ago. They're not there now. He's solidified that. We understand what he can do power-wise. There was some regression there from the the short 2020 season, but that was to be expected. And so he's he's kind of found his level. And, uh, and, you know, better yet, I mean, because he did have a big spike in strikeouts last year, you could probably expect him to to cut that back a bit and regress in a positive way. And those are some pretty nice numbers uh, that you're getting outside the top 100. So... Yeah, I, I, I'm all about it. 
I think the lineup context could be even better than it was a year ago because even if Shohei Otani comes back to earth a little, a healthier, healthy-ish, mostly healthy Mike Trout and a mostly healthy Anthony Rendon should more than offset that. So this could be a really good top six in this batting order, especially Walsh could reap the benefits of that. Um, I wonder if the batting average might come down just a little bit. Projections sort of hit the nail on the head for me. The bat X has him all the way down at 252. I think that's a little closer to a floor for me than an expectation, but I would see him as more of a 260 guy than a high 270s guy. Maybe that's just splitting hairs at this point because the 26% K rate that we saw last year, that's probably a pretty good indicator of who he is at this stage of his career now that he's already 28 years old. Let's go to Seattle. I want to talk about the relievers here first because if you're in a league that does not count holds, it is very difficult to decide which Mariners relievers you are comfortable rostering. Price isn't necessarily the problem. It's And it's a great bullpen. This is legitimately a playoff caliber bullpen. You've got a guy who's been a good closer before coming off an injury in Ken Giles. You've got a guy who had the breakout season a year ago in Paul Seawald. You've got Diego Castillo, who's been part of these sorts of committees before. You've got Drew Steckenrider, who's actually closed before. Uh, you've got Andres Munoz, who's a young, basically a reliever prospect that they got in that big trade with the Padres a couple of year, years ago, who's finally healthy again. And you've even got a guy like Matt Brash, who, if he's not in the rotation, pretty easily fits into this bullpen mix as well. And those are all really good relievers to have, really from like the fifth inning on. I, they might not be the kind of team that even has a designated closer. That could that could be part of what they're doing. They could be doing the Tampa Bay thing. But in a league that does not account for holds, which Mariners relievers, if any, are you currently drafting? I think probably Seawald. But yeah, it's a tough situation because it, it is hard to see them going with just one reliever. They didn't really do that last year. And... Uh, Castillo, like you said, the only one out of that cluster that I think maybe winds up getting overdrafted is Drew Steckenrider, just because the peripherals really didn't support um, the overall results last year. Uh, so I could see him with so much talent around him, him you know falling back into a middle relief role. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if it was Paul Sewold's job to, to just take and run with, um, he'd be one of the early relievers that I'd be targeting because there's just so few short things, both in terms of role and in terms of performance. But that's not going to be the case in Seattle, I don't think. So I'll probably wind up missing out on on all these guys. I've been drafting Seawald so far, and I'm using him more on teams where I don't get the early closers. And we talked last week about the willingness to spend up on elite closers that I have to chase via fab later on. And I think the reason I've been targeting Seawald is even if they chop the closer roll into three pieces, this is a team that should win a lot. They should generate at least 40-plus save chances. I could see Seawald ending up with half. I'll take a 20-save guy that, that strikes out 90 or 100 batters with, with good ratios. I'm, I'm, I believe in the skills. I, I think what he did last year was actually real. I mean, Sierra has him at a 248. He had a 306 ERA. There's a chance that he gets a little better with the ratios. The swinging strike rate was good. The walk rate wasn't a problem. And the K rate was elite. So he ticks pretty much all the boxes. A little bit of a home run issue. He's always had that. I wonder if that is something that can't be fixed necessarily. But I think there's at least a, enough of a chance in leagues where you can't make moves where 
he ends up with a larger share of the job, even if it's a shared job all season. And he's good enough where I trust the skills as a roster filler, even if it's the league where I can't drop him, right? Like it, it, you could throw him in there as your ninth pitcher. And I think that K rate's high enough where he's not necessarily hurting you as much as uh, some of the really bad starters you may have to throw out there if you are relying on your round 40 to round 50 starters. This is a team that has a few other job battles that are interesting. I'm curious to see what happens behind the plate. They've got a couple of younger guys and Cal Raleigh and Luis Torrens, but they've got Tom Murphy still there taking up some space. You know, I think Ty France, someone pointed out to me on, D- on, on Twitter, his defense is really good. So even though he may have topped out in terms of what he can do as a hitter, it might be difficult for Evan White to get that job back. And they might actually value just keeping France in the lineup for his glove even as this lineup gets better. So that was something that I'd previously overlooked. So initially I thought maybe Evan White was a threat to tie France. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, even though White signed that extension a few years ago. Kyle Lewis kind of seems like a forgotten guy in Seattle because Hanniger had the bounce back. Kelnick got called up. We have Julio Rodriguez coming up. I know it's been a lot of injuries for Lewis over the course of his career, Al, but there was a good bit of buzz about him coming out of, of 2020. Are you interested in a possible bounce back from Lewis going outside the top 300 overall? You know, I haven't really been been that intrigued by him so far this year. Um, and I, I just, yeah, he really did uh, not bounce back well after, you know, miss, missing the, all that time. Uh, you know, that said, I mean, like you said, because he is a forgotten man, I don't think there's that much... There's that not that much risk in pursuing him. Uh, you could easily get him. I mean, even a 15 teamer, you could probably get him really late. Uh, so it, it's low risk. But I, yeah, I just don't know that it's reasonable to expect that much uh, from him. Um, yeah, yeah, around 20 or so uh, would be where he goes in a 15 teamer right now. So very late in part because of both Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez. We talked, I think, a bit about Rodriguez on the show last week uh, when I said, look, Bobby Witt Jr. might be a lot of fun, might be a great player, might not take him that long, but that's a high price to pay for a guy that has to adjust to big league pitching for the first time. And if you expect Rodriguez to come up early this season, which I do, there might not be that much of a difference in terms of what those two players give you, at least once the playing time levels out. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't expect Witt to play more. If you have the flexibility on your roster, if you build your team in a way where you can have that one roster spot where you're stashing either Rodriguez or an injured player, is Rodriguez in the pool of players you're considering for that spot where he's going as a kind of a fringy like top 275, top 300 guy right now? Yeah, I, he's he's absolutely worth it. And uh, you know, there's Witt, there's... Uh, uh, Adley Rutschman, uh, and you know it's, it's a pretty short list of players. So I think in that particular scenario, are worth stashing until they come up and uh, establish themselves. So, uh, yeah, absolutely worth it. Let's take a look at Jared Kelnick for a moment. We saw some improvement for him over the course of the season. That demotion after the miserable first stretch in the big leagues seemed to get him right. The projections from the bat X for Jared Kelnick for this year. I want you to take over or under on each of these three categories. Average 229. I'm taking the under. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, 
forced forced to to pick a side on that one. Uh, I, I mean, when you look at last year, I mean, he didn't really start to heat up until September, and I finally learned after all these years to not give so much weight to that because. You know, you, you've got call-ups and teams that are, you know, maybe not always putting their their best lineup out there. Maybe they're, you know, if they're contenders, maybe they're resting players. If they're not contenders, they're tinkering with the lineups just you know, see what they've got for the next year. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen better numbers earlier in the year from from Kelnick. And obviously the upside is, is still immense with him, but... You know the the floor is a long way below that that projection. I mean that's that's really as, assuming a lot of the um, the potential is going to be you know realized this year. So yeah, I I look. I think all these um, the bad X projections are pretty much where I would would put them myself. But if I have to go over or under, I I would say that I think he's more likely to hit like two ten two twenty than he is to hit two forty. Wow, I'm uh, I'm blown away. That that average number just seemed on the light side even if you don't think he's going to be good in the batting average category this year I thought a slight step forward above that projection was where you were going to fall on that but how about the power uh, 21 homers I'll, I'll take the slight over on that uh, because again that's the skill that we did see uh, some evidence of last season so I feel pretty pretty secure in, a, in an upgrade with that so you, you prorate what he did last year over a, a full season and you know you're, you're getting right around 20 so I, I feel good about that all right, and then steals. The Bat X has Jared Kelnick at 11. He was 6 for 10 in the big leagues last year over 93 games. Yeah, so not great efficiency. I mean, it's a small sample too, so you can't really make too much of a deal about how many times he got thrown out out of those 10 attempts. But just because I tend to be conservative about stolen bases, I, I would take the slight under. And just to reiterate, I mean, I think all these projections are really on the mark. Um, so I'm not really wanting to pick an over and under, but you know, I, I could see there being a little bit of room for him to to fall off and you know only get to eight or nine this year. All right, so you're basically just on board with the numbers that were generated yeah. here: a 229 average, 303 OBP, 410 slug from the bad X, 21 homers, 11 steals. Good power speed combination, but definitely yeah. comes up light, I think, in terms of runs and RBIs if that slash line plays out that way, because they'll stop jamming him into the top part of the lineup. If that's how it plays out for a long enough period of time, the opportunities to be in those prominent spots will at least temporarily go away until he takes that step forward, at which point they can move him back up in the lineup later on. Let's go to the Rangers as we close things out today. A lot of things to ask about here. I think this is a team that, as I've once said, has shown they have this ability to dig in the kind of second-tier, third-tier range of free agent pitching and get a lot of mileage out of those guys. I think Mike Miner a few years ago is a good example of that. Uh, Lance Lynn's career resurgence happened there. I think Kyle Gibson, even to some extent, <laughs> was a guy that they went after that they, they got pretty good mileage out of as well. And of all those guys, I think John Gray probably had the loftiest expectations of all as a prospect and early in his career. We finally have him outside of Colorado years after people wanted him to be traded by the Rockies to go somewhere <laughs> else. So is there still something to be excited about at this stage of his career, given what you've seen from him in Colorado, given you know pitches, the pitch mix, uh, velocity, whatever it might be, or even just buying on, buying on the idea that Texas kind of knows what they're doing when it comes to finding pitchers in this range? 
I think there's a little something to that. And just the fact of, of you know, the park factor upgrade, huge park factor upgrade. And you, you combine that with the just the consistency that Gray, Gray has shown over the years. I mean, not always consistent in, in terms of, um, you know, health and, and the number of innings that he's produced each season. But, you know, just right around a strikeout per inning, um, you know, right around three walks per nine. Very good every single year in Colorado at uh, preventing home runs, which is kind of incredible. So you give him a better venue to pitch his home games in. You also you know, give him a good shot to reduce a career 317 Babbitt rate. Um, you know, I his, his um, ERA estimators uh, over his career have been right around or under four. So you give him a chance to, to actually perform to that. So am I excited about a guy who, you know, probably is going to be upper three ZRA? I mean, not really, but if he stays healthy, that, that, that is worth something in this environment. Yeah. an upper three ZRA beats the ERA projection from all of the projection systems at Fangraphs, but it doesn't seem that unrealistic. I mean, I see uh, ATC has got a 129 whip. If you told me, John Gray is going to come out and give us 180 plus innings, and it's going to be a 380 ERA and a 125 WHIP with a lot of strikeouts. I'm not going to push back on that. I think that's a very reasonable expectation for him, given the underlying numbers. I think too, when you look at some of the the hard contact numbers within Statcast, he's not he's not just giving up rockets out there. Like there's a home run rate that's been high for four straight years, but it's not quite the same as other players elevated home run rates over a four-year stretch and it's they're not really that high i mean you know the, yeah the one year of a 1.4 homer per nine ratio 2018 but uh you know the year of the rabbit ball 1.14 last year 1.27 i mean that's on the low side wherever you pitch for somebody who pitches home games at Coors field i mean that's that's almost remarkable yeah, I was trying to look to see for pitchers with a hundred or more innings where John Gray ranks in barrel rate allowed. And there are. This is fun. Always do research on the podcast. I didn't think to look this up until now. Like full full disclosure. If I thought of it previously, I would have looked it up and put it in the show sheet. The okay, out of 129 pitchers with at least a hundred innings, we're really just looking at starters from last year, high volume starters from last year. John Gray ranked forty-sixth in barrel rate allowed at a 129, 6.9%. So he's sitting there with Clayton Kershaw, Kevin Gossman's in that range, Aaron Nola's in that range, Walker Bueller's in that range, Lucas Giolito's in that range, uh, Mitch Keller's in that range. They're not all good pitchers, but mm-hmm. the, the point is, like, I'd be more concerned about John Gray. I'd be a lot more concerned about John Gray if guys were just squaring him up constantly. But he's not in the Marco Gonzalez Brad Keller, Yusei Kikuchi, Tarek Skubal range. Ooh, Shane McClanahan's high up on that list, too. Guys that get barreled a lot. And I think that also gives me a little extra confidence that we can see that home run rate come down to, like, it's pre-2018 levels, and it wouldn't be that surprising. Park factor's also a big part of that. So he kind of wins on both sides. The type of contact he allows and where he gets to pitch half of his games. And Texas might not be a bad team just in terms of, of run support, We'll see what they do with the bullpen. We'll get to some questions about that uh, in just a minute. But the other pitcher that we wanted to look at here was Dane Dunning. And he's just kind of, he seems kind of blah on the surface. I, I don't hear anyone really talking him up this offseason. 
The price is cheap, well outside the top 300 in terms of ADP. But he is the second Ranger starting pitcher being drafted behind Gray. Joe Barlow actually has the best ADP of all Rangers pitchers as of right now because saves are fun. Uh, so what is it about Dane Dunning that gives you some hope that he can take another step forward? Uh, well, I think, you know, just a couple of things. First of all, that, you know, last year was his first full year in the major. So just, you know, he's not, he's, you know, it's a little on the old side for that. He's 27, uh, just turned 27. Uh, but, you know, I think still young enough that we could see a little bit of skills growth. And the fact that, uh, you know, last year, a 4.51 ERA uh, with a 338 BABIP that I don't think that he deserved. So uh, everything else looks looks pretty much in line. I mean, he's got a, a sinker that helps him to keep the ball in the park. He's got a slider that helps to keep the, the whiff rate um, at a decent decent level. So those peripherals wind up being sort of like John Gray's, you know, about a, a strikeout per inning. You could probably expect three walks per nine. Uh, could have a home run rate that's, you know, not too far above one per nine, which again, in this environment, is pretty darn good. So you put that all together, you've you've got, you know, probably a slightly better than average pitcher um, who you could draft basically whenever you want. Yeah, very usable, at least for home starts, but probably some room to use him outside of Texas as well. We talked about Oakland's weaknesses. They could be an easy team to pitch against on the road because of the lineup and because the park is pitcher-friendly anyway. Definitely uh, maybe a guy that ends up in your lineup 65 to 70% of the time, depending on how things go this season. Uh, what about Glenn Otto, who I think had good underlying numbers but bad surface numbers it was such a small sample i think it's hard to get too far into it either way i mean i i wouldn't say that he's a true talent low threes era guy because the fip was so good like we know the limitations of fip and sierra was at 382 just for reference there but he did miss some bats he doesn't seem to have a major walk issue kind of going back to his minor league track record as well and he hasn't really ever had issues with the long ball either. So what do you make of Glenn Otto having seen just a little bit of him at the end of last season? I mean, I think he's mostly an onlys and deep league guy, but I, I'm not really seeing any sort of buzz about him at all. And um, I, there's certainly opportunities for him to crack that Rangers rotation. So there, the opportunity is on his side when when he got traded from the Yankees to the Rangers. I mean, I remember kind of having that thought like, huh, you know, intriguing skill set in the minors, some definitely some strikeout potential there and a real opportunity to get a long look in, in a not very deep rotation. So, you know, for those reasons, yeah, definitely a mixed record and a very, very limited uh, sample of innings last year. But, you know, as far as uh, pitching sleepers go, very late. Uh, I just think he's a name to to include in your queue. We talked about him on Under the Radar last week, but it'd be a failure on our part if we didn't just say Spencer Howard is basically free right now. So if you ever believed he was going to be a good big league pitcher, take the chance. Take him with one of your last picks. See what happens because it, this is a pretty deep arsenal. It's actually a four-pitch arsenal. Command's always been kind of the big question. And if it clicks, it could actually be the kind of thing where Howard is more of a mixed league viable sort of pitcher. Like there's there's a world in which Spencer Howard becomes the best of the Rangers pitchers that we've talked about on the pod today, and it wouldn't it wouldn't be all that surprising given his prospect pedigree. He kind of won the Park Effects lottery when he got traded to Texas last summer as well. On the hitting side, I think the one thing that has caught my eye, and this is credit to Eno for hammering this one home, Donnie Ecker, the Giants hitting coach, was hired by the Rangers and. That just gives you a reason to start 
doing what we're talking about with the depth chart and saying, well, who's going to play a lot here? Who who might seem like they're just a known commodity that the market is sleeping on? I think the best example of that overall could be someone like you know Willie Calhoun if you're in a really deep draft and hold situation. But the example Eno threw at me was Nate Lowe, and I'm buying it. I think Nate Lowe makes a lot of sense. Like If you get caught in a situation where you waited too long to get a first baseman, you might actually get lucky. The lineup around him is better. He's done a good job, cut the K rate down last year. He's always drawn walks. The stack cast numbers aren't bad. It's just a matter of getting the ball in the air. But there could be a few other hitters in the mix in Texas that could just be one tweak away from unlocking something pretty interesting. I agree. I agree. And it's, you know, anytime you can get, uh, you know, Saris to, to validate your, <laughs> validate your suspicions. Uh, that's always reassuring. So yeah, pretty much everything you just said, uh, DVR that, you know, somebody who can get on base, uh, if he just gets, uh, the ball up in the air a little bit more, you could see, uh, you know, nice power spike into 25 plus home run territory, um, you know, already showing the ability to, to hit for average, um, you know, eight steals last year too. So, um, you know, won't necessarily, uh, be, be, um, a, a zero in that category for you. So yeah, I think there's still some unfulfilled upside here and with a, a better lineup around him. Uh, I, I love the, the value so far. I'm definitely looking at this team and saying, well, if we had to put Kenley Jansen on a team, he sure would help. We've spent the money so far adding, a lot of players, I mean, Semyon and Seeger, of course, the two big additions. They spent the money on John Gray. They added Cole Calhoun on the margins, too. Why not add one more? Why not go out and, and add Kenley Jansen to help fortify the bullpen? I think you you have some questions about the quality of this group of late-inning relievers anyway. I mentioned Barlow before as the guy. But at least if Jansen went to Texas, I would say, yeah, he's their guy. They're going to let him close all season. If he goes back to Los Angeles, goes to... Uh, a team that has a more crowded bullpen, I think we're still going to have that lingering question of, ooh, is this the year where Kenley Jansen finally loses the closer role? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And this Texas situation is one where if they don't sign Kenley Jansen, it's it's not one where I'm going to expect I'm going to regret just passing on on the options. So roster resources got Joe Barlow in the closer seat uh, by himself. And again, you know, these are all just, uh, you know, at th- this point um, – you know, the very best uh, educated guesses. Um, but that there's just no standout arm in that bullpen where it would feel like it was worth taking the risk, even if they were to bring somebody of, of Jansen's um, uh, caliber in, into the situation. So, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, it's the way it currently stands, it's, it's best to just sit this one out. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, Lou Trevino similarities for Joe Barlow. Like if you if you're worried about Lou Trevino in Oakland, you're probably worried about Barlow uh, as the guy in in Texas. A little more Avilo from Trevino too, but both had some issues with walks last year. It seems like one of the quickest ways, other than a home run problem, to uh, lose your hold on a ninth inning roll. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Before we go, I should let you know you can sign up for The Athletic. Get 33% off the first year at theathletic.com slash fantasybaseballpodcast. You can find Al on Twitter at LMelchiorBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you Friday on Under the Radar. Under the Radar.